morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. There are so many traditional hymns that we love to sing around this time of year. Those songs that that are associated with the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so much associated that, that if, you just, if, if you just hear someone begin to whistle the tune, immediately you're, you're, you're plunged into a memory of, of Christmas. You, you know exactly what that tune is and you're thinking of Christmas time. Perhaps none as much as the song Adestis Fidelis. Uh, uh, Venite Adormas uh, Dominus, I think it is. O come, all ye faithful, come adore your king. What a beautiful, beautiful hymn that is. It's, it's so beautiful because it's a call. It's a call that we all get to participate in. And we get to call one another to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, that is exactly the call that you and I need to heed today. We need to take that seriously. The, the call that to heed to, to, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, last week we came to the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, we read of the great glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, Who has gone into heaven, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to us. We saw last week that the Apostle Peter wants us to understand that following the crucifixion of our Lord and following the resurrection of our Lord, he physically ascended into heaven. He was seated at the right hand of God. And this is a reference to his, not only his ascension, but ultimately to his glorification. And this morning, what I would like us to do for these next few moments is I'd like us to consider our glorified Jesus Christ. But we don't have to do this according to our imagination. Because we have the very Word of God itself. We have the living Word of of the living God to take us into heaven's throne room where we can get a glorious glimpse of our glorified Christ which will lead us to obey that call to worship. We are to come and adore our King. And I would like to take you from 1 Peter chapter 3 to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 5. In chapter 5, we see this King. And because of our sight of this King, we will be led to worship Him the way that He is worthy of being worshipped. You'll notice here in Revelation chapter 5 that, that there is a, a picture of the heavenly reality. A picture of the heavenly reality. And I just want to emphasize this to you. When I use the term heavenly realities, I'm not referring to something that is less than real. Something that is less than, than tangible. What we have here in Revelation chapter 5 is a divinely granted glimpse into the glory of heaven. And it is stunning, it is beautiful, and it is real. Let me read. Revelation chapter 5 for you. Follow along as I read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll 
written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Pray with me. Oh, Father, this is your word. Give our attention to it now. Cement our hearts to the word. Rivet our eyes on your glory. Change our minds today as a result of this text. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. There's a narrative here, a story unfolding in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, there are basically three scenes in this, in this story, three scenes in this narrative that that culminates in worship of Christ. And that's that's what this chapter is all about. That's what my goal is today. One of my mentors used to say, when you preach, you preach for a verdict. You preach demanding a verdict from your audience. And today, the verdict for which I'm calling, the decision that I'm calling for you to make is a decision to all out worship Christ. No matter what. And that's what this chapter is about. It's about the worship of Christ. I I want you to see these scenes as they unfold. And I'll just kind of give a title. Scene 1, we'll call that the scroll. Scene 2, we'll call it the search. And scene 3, we'll call it the song. Scroll, search, and song. Look at scene 1. You see it here as we begin this chapter. And I'm going to try my best to make it through this chapter and, and to try to make it all one uh, uh, unit for us. But our attention in this psalm, or in this chapter, is immediately drawn to the right hand 
of Him who was seated on the throne. Think right hand. The hand of authority. The hand of power. The hand of might. Right? Now our attention is drawn to the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. Now that's very important because you say, a throne? What throne? Well, this throne has already been described for us back in chapter 4. And that is a glorious chapter, my friends. In fact, we can't even think about Revelation chapter 5 without also thinking about Revelation chapter 4. I want you to look back there with me for a moment. And the first thing that John sees is this open door into heaven in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. He's, he's given a glimpse into heaven's throne room. But as that door is open into heaven, his attention is drawn to a throne. Look at it in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold. Now, let me stop there. You see that word behold, especially in the book of Revelation. It's like, it's like bold I, I, italics, underline. This is something that we're to take notice of. Stare at this. Gaze upon this. What is it? A throne stood in heaven. A throne firmly fixed established it was not being established it was not going to be established but there is this throne firmly set in heaven immovably placed in heaven but john's eyes quickly move from the reality that there is a throne to the fact that there is one seated on the throne verse 2 a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne He wants us to see something about the one who is occupying this this throne. And you notice what he does? He points us to this king. He points us to this almighty king. The emphasis of the previous two chapters, uh, or the previous three chapters in the book of Revelation, was upon the local church on the earth. Now in the book of Revelation, the focus moves to that which is taking place in heaven and that which is specifically before the very throne of God Himself. And John describes the one who is on that throne. There's there's symbolism here. There's analogy that is used here. And he describes the appearance of the one who is set on the throne, saying, like a stone. What kind of stone? Like a jasper and carnelian. We say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, if you think of jasper, the way it's used in Revelation 21, 11, the stone is said to be something that is clear as crystal. A precious stone that is clear as crystal. What, we, what might we liken to that? We would liken that to what? Ladies, what's on your fingers? A diamond, right? Or cubic zirconia, whatever it is. This is something that is far more precious, far more beautiful. It is a precious stone that is clear as crystal. Now what happens here is John perceives the appearance of God such that he is seeing the magnificent purity and crystal beauty, something that is bright, something that is of refulgent splendor and absolutely beautiful. But not only does he speak of the the, the appearance of God as a jasper, he says it's also as carnelian. This is important. 
This stone is known universally as a stone that is reddish in color and is very precious. And what you have here, friends, is a picture of the purity and glorious majesty of the authority, righteousness, holiness, the divine transcendence, the incredible worth and preciousness communicated in that crystal-like jasper together with the picture of divine vengeance and fiery wrath and anger remanating from the, the, uh, the, uh, emanating rather from the very throne of God in this red, carnelian-like appearance of God. You've got holy splendor and divine wrath represented here. Fiery wrath represented here. And he says it's going out from the throne. That's where its, it's, 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 it's uh, origin is. He says, in fact, there are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. You know throughout the scriptures that these are are, are always associated with the fearful presence of God. These, these, it proceeds right from the throne of God. This is an image. The, the lightning and the thunder reminds us of God's covenant with His people at Israel. And how did Israel respond at Mount Sinai? They responded with awe. They responded with fear. They responded with a trembling before the, the, a, a reverence before the awesome power of God. And that's what we find when we approach the throne of God. We, we hear today about people writing books, uh, 27 Minutes in Heaven, or Heaven is for Real, or something like this, and you, you read with such levity that speak, people speak of heaven. That is absolute garbage. Because when we read of an appearance of God in the Scriptures, we don't read of levity, we don't read of splashing around in the sea with Jesus We read of absolute awe and reverential fear because we see God not only as holy, but God as a God of wrath and judgment. And as John views the throne of God, he sees that God's wrath is emanating from the throne in preparation to be poured out on all the earth upon mankind. There's a fearful sight, friends. There's a throne. And there's one sitting on the throne. But then he says, not only that, he says, I saw burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Thus far in Revelation 4, we've witnessed the glory of God the Father, and now you see the the glory of the third person of the Trinity represented before the throne of God. Just like at the baptism of Christ, the Spirit who is unseen to man's eyes would manifest in the form of a dove. And just as on the day of Pentecost, the unseen Spirit was manifest by tongues of fire, so now he is manifest in the forms of intensely blazing torches of fire. Now, I'm not talking about light-giving lamps, but I'm talking about torches that burn in open air, burning with, with a, a burning and a flame that is fierce and that is strong. And he says there's seven torches, seven burning flames reflecting the completion or the perfection of the Spirit of God. Again, the picture blazing torches symbolizes the coming judgment against wickedness. By the way, you often hear people speak today. They're saying, we're going to have a time of worship. And now then they start talking about, God, send down your fire. Send down your fire. Let me tell you something. When God sends down fire from heaven, that's never a good thing. It's ne- you, if you're ever in a service where someone on the stage begins to say, God, send down your fire, make a quick exodus. 
Get out of there. Because fire will come down. And when that comes, that is never a good thing. We have here a picture of judgment. Fiery, ferocious judgment. The seven torches reflect so brilliantly. As John says that he, he saw around like a sea. Now this is not a literal sea. This is not a sea of water. But just a, a cascading crystal floor all around. And you can imagine with such bright lightning and, and fire and glorious refulgent glory just reflecting and refracting everywhere. It's just this bright brilliance that John sees. Suggests the majesty. Suggests purity. It's something that is absolutely stunning. Something that is beautiful. Something that is blindingly bright beyond our greatest imagination. But again, we're talking about reality here. And it's just scratching the surface I'm really just hurrying along of what John saw here in Revelation chapter 4. That's a little bit of the background. You have this fearful sight of this firmly set throne in heaven with one who is seated on it, with, filled with glory, glory emanating from his being, holiness, purity, majesty, authority, indeed wrath. That's what you see at this that's, that's the background to chapter 5. And when John says that there is one sitting on the throne, he's speaking of this one who is receiving the worship of the 24 elders gathered around the throne. And then there are four living beings around the throne. This is the one who created all things. This is the one who sustains all things. This is the one who is the end of all things. The one who is so brilliant and glorious and beautiful and fearful and holy. That's what John sees in Revelation chapter 5. And I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. But from there, we go back in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, and you see John noticing in the right hand of this powerful, almighty king, heavenly king, in his right hand is a scroll. A scroll with writing on the inside and the outside. And John must have gotten a good look at that scroll because he could see that it was sealed with seven seals. The word seals here is in the plural and it's referring generally to a set or a seal marked upon a thing as a token of its authenticity. The seals most likely correspond to the way in which wills were were consummated in the ancient times. You see, when a will was written, seven witnesses were called to act as a witness of the one who would be able to open the will, to unveil the will, to administer the will at the proper time. This person would be the one who had the legal authority to reveal and administer the contents of the will. Contents of the will, typically the property and other things left behind uh, of this person. Specifically dealing with the property, his possessions, and the people who, to whom it was given. This will was written before the testator died. And he would appoint someone to act as the executor of the, st- of the state. And the seven witnesses would seal the will. And when they witnessed who it was, who was appointed to, to open the will, to, to, to execute the, the estate, then the estate could be opened. The scroll is written on both sides. 
There's a lot of information here. It's not just a little bit. There's a ton of information. It's a huge will. It's, it's very large. It's in the right hand of Him who sat on the heavenly throne. What is this? What is this scroll? Revelation 10.7 says the scroll is the mystery of God that would be fulfilled just as He announced to His servants, the prophets. Some have suggested that this scroll is, is, is the full content of the new covenant of God's promised kingdom. Some say that it's the the Lamb's book of life. Others view it more generally as God's redemptive program predicted in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. I I like to refer to it as God's title deed to planet earth. God's title deed to to the history of the future. This, This scroll contains the rest of the book of Revelation from at least chapter from chapter six on. This scroll reveals the judgments of God to be poured out upon the earth. This scroll reveals the the second coming of Christ when He comes to rightfully inherit and implement the title deed uh, of redemption to planet earth. It includes His glorious millennial kingdom. It is God's foreordained and eternal plan of redemption through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to see You say, well, why is this important for us to see? Because, friends, listen, we look around us and we see our world in an absolute mess. One man said this, how will God ever straighten out this mess? (laughs) You ever wonder that? How will God ever straighten out this mess? He said, how will God ever fulfill His promise of a golden age when men will live in a world without war? I mean, what do we hear today? War on every side. How will, we, will God fulfill His promise to live in a world without bloodshed, without hatred, without prejudice, when sorrow, death, and tears have all been taken away? How is it to be brought about? He says men have been dreaming of a world at peace, a utopia on earth, and for centuries, but no one has ever found the answer. This scroll contains the answer. And you can imagine. I mean, that's... Of all the things that John has to focus on, I mean, there's, he's, he's seeing heaven open. There's the throne of God. There's God Himself. The seven spirits, the Spirit of God manifested before this throne in bright, refulgent glory. But he looks to this scroll and he longs for that scroll to be opened. And that's where we move from the first scene to, from a scroll to a search. There is a a loud voice of a mighty angel in verse 2 saying, Who is worthy to, to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is the executor of the estate? Who is the worthy one? And you can imagine John just saying, Yes, who is it? Who is, where is he? I want to see. I long for God to, to fulfill his plan. Who is he? Who can administrate and dispense the property and possessions to the people of this king? But to our surprise, what is emphasized in this text is the universal inability of anyone to act as the executor that is emphasized. And that's what brings John in verse 4 to sobbing to the sobbing grief, to the the sorrow, so much so that he begins to weep 
loudly. And you need to understand that that's what's being emphasized here. This is not a quiet whimper. This is a loud, sorrowful sob. No one was able. This is a very direct, clear, succinct statement. No one had the inherent ability. No one had the strength to open the book. No one had the the ability to loose the seals or to look at it. Not in heaven. And this is not in plural heavens. It is singular. No one in heaven. No one on the earth. No one under the earth could look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was able, no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one could be found who was able to unseal the scroll. The best among men. No angel. No politician had enough power. No philosopher enough wisdom. No saint enough righteousness to bring about the ultimate plan of God. And John wept. But someone said, Christ is best seen by weeping eyes. Christ is best seen by weeping eyes. And it's just at that moment that one of the elders, one of the 24 that was around the throne, said to John, weep no more. And then here's the word. Behold. Put your gaze here. Look upon this with wonder and amazement. Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. And this would mean something to John because of his Jewish roots. He would understand the Messianic tone of such such words. Lion of the tribe of Judah. Root of David, he's the one who is able to open the scroll. He's the one who is able to unloose the seven seals. This is Old Testament messianic prediction. I mean, we're not just talking about a lion cub. We're talking about the very lion of Judah himself, the root of David. Well, that serves to remind us that this is the one who was the source of David's kingdom. What we have here, friends, in this search is the Savior being presented And the scene changes drastically from one of suspense leading to grief and sorrow back to exuberant hope and ecstatic joy from extreme grief to extravagant worship because John is directed to the Messiah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David himself. And John sees the ultimate glorious person who is able to take the scroll and to loose the seals. He is the lion. Lion. (laughs) A few years ago, I was in Uganda. And uh, just before I was able to, to, to fly out, we decided to go through this little zoo there in Entebbe. And, and we were walking along this. It's really not a whole lot to see. But there's some animals in what I thought were secure cages. On one side there was this animal and on the other side there were lions. And, and something had happened that the animals that were kept in separate secure cages actually got together. And I had a front row seat on National Geographic 
And I'm standing there watching these animals attack one another. Didn't even think to take a video. And then all of a sudden, because of the commotion, the lions over here on this side decided they were going to get involved and started to roar. And I'm telling you, they, get, they made my liver shiver. And then I thought, wait a minute, if that cage isn't secure. So I went to see the chimpanzees. When you have that picture of a lion, you think of authority, you think of majesty, you think of might. And there is the note here in the lion of the tribe of Judah, the note of authority and majesty and glory in that lion. And the root of David, the one from which David's rule finds its origin, there's kingly majesty, sovereign authority. And John is saying, yes! This was the longing of the disciples. Remember what they said to Jesus? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And now John's going to see it. The line of the tribe of Judah. Roar! The, the authority, the one from whom David's authority uh, uh, originates. And he turns. And just as he turns to see this lion, he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He expected to see a lion, but he saw a once slain lamb still with the marks of death clearly seen. And it is here, finally, that we have the uniting of the themes of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The lion of the old, the lamb of the new, Jewish elements clearly seen in this image. Having seven horns, an image that speaks of the fullness of, of, of power, Ray Stedman said, as the Lion of Judah, our Lord reigns. But if anyone is weak and faltering, helpless or hopeless, he or she will find a compassionate Savior because this Lion is also a Lamb. As the Lamb of God, He is filled with mercy and grace. But if any should presume upon that grace and begin to live a rebellious or defiant life, let him beware because this Lamb is also a Lion. And it's amazing what happens. You have the, the seven horns, the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. We have this picture of, of power, uh, omnipotence. We have this picture of, of omnipresence. We have this picture of omniscience. We have this picture of deity. But what's amazing is how verse 7 starts. He went, this this line of the tribe of Judah, this lamb as though it had been slain. He, person, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. I tried to emphasize the glory around that throne and the majesty around that throne and the fearful awfulness around that throne so that you would be amazed that someone would actually have the gall to walk up to that throne and reach out His hand and take unto Himself from the right hand of the glorious majesty on high seated on the throne to take that scroll unto Himself. You've got to have some gall to do that. But He walks up without question, without doubt. 
And he takes the scroll because he's worthy. You should not miss the significance of that. You have here the sovereign, merciful, holy judge who is worthy of worship and praise because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the great judge, the one who is called in the book of Daniel, the ancient of days. And the lion, who is the lamb, just walks right up to the throne and takes the scroll unto himself. The scroll represents all the plans of God for continuing His plan of redemption. It is the will and testament of God that all those who have atonement made for their sins should be redeemed. The scroll contains the whole of what God will do for all those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the fulfillment of God's work of redemption, the the fulfillment of Christ's work of atonement. It is the actual redemption of His purchased possession, the church, and the fulfillment of His plans for Israel. He's taking the scroll, one man said. His taking of the scroll marks the initiation of the proceedings to convert its contents into reality and eventually usher in the promised kingdom. You see the scroll, you see the search. But I want to close this morning with the song. The song is introduced here to us in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. It was when Christ had taken the scroll, when this lion lamb had taken the scroll, that this worship takes place. The, The four living ones, the 24 elders, angelic, the four living ones, angels, righteous angels, the 24 elders, representative, of, of, of God's elect from all time. They, they in humility and utter reverence fall down before the Lamb, throwing themselves on the ground in worship and devotion before the superior King. The Lamb is worthy to take. In fact, He does take this scroll. And because He's worthy to take this scroll, He's also worthy of receiving worship. Because He's worthy of receiving worship, we understand that this lion lamb is deity. And I want you to see this song that they sing. Note first how this song is accompanied by the prayers of the saints. The 24 elders have have this golden harp. Harp used throughout the Scriptures. I'm just kind of hurrying on now. Harp used throughout the Scriptures to speak of, of prophetic praise and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They're full of incenses. The, the, the incense is the prayer of the saints. The saints of all the ages who have prayed, Thy kingdom come. The saints of all the ages who have prayed for the fulfillment of God's promises from the beginning of time all kept in these, in these golden bowls, like, like, like the incense of the, of, of the priests kept in the temple to be poured out in praise to God. This song is accompanied by all those prayers. You think your prayers for God to rule and reign have not been heard? you got another thing coming. They are kept in heaven. In order to be poured out before God that He might honor, yes, honor the prayers of His saints. This song is accompanied by the prayers of His saints, but it is also 
based on the work of Jesus Christ. They sang a new song. A new song. Remember the, that old hymn I love to sing? I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when it sings scenes of glory, I sing the new, new song. T'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. That's what the story that they're telling is. That's what this song is all about. This is the song of redeemed men. Those who have been ransomed by God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are singing this new song. This song is mentioned at least six times in the Psalms itself. The word new is referenced to to quality, not in time. In other words, it is a qualitatively new song. And what is this song? We don't have to wonder. It's the song of the Gospel. It's the song of redemption's story. It's the song of salvation's history. It's a song that, that speaks of the work of Christ. It speaks of the power of Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll. That word worthy is speaking of someone who is deserving. It, it's used in verse 5 of, of ability. Christ has the ability to take the scroll and He is the one and only one who is deserving of that. He is the one and only one who is worthy to open the seals. He is the one and only one who deserves to reveal what the scroll contains by opening its seals. It only speaks of the power of Christ, but this song speaks of the purchase of Christ. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You were literally slaughtered. That's what the word slain means. Because he was slaughtered, he's worthy. This is, this is the picture of sacrificial slaughtering. It refers to a bloody, vicarious sacrifice. And he says, by that vicarious sacrifice, you have redeemed us. You have ransomed us to God by your blood. I want you to know that, that the Bible sees that the sacrifice of Christ actually accomplished something. He did not do what he did on the cross wishing that someone, anyone, would be redeemed. He actually paid the full price for every believer. He made a purchase. But this purchase is literally a purchase for God. He came from God. He came for God. Paul would say, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You were redeemed. You were bought at a slave auction. And Christ paid for your freedom. Not only do we hear something of the the power of Christ and the purchase of Christ in this psalm, but you hear something of the people of Christ. You have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Just trying to hurry on here. It must have been a thrilling thing for John. Think about where John is. When he received the revelation, he's on the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony for Christ. And what he understands, what we need to understand today, and that is this that though the messenger is in prison, the message is not. Though the messenger be chained, the message never is. And what John gets a glimpse of here is the reality that. The message actually makes a difference. 
It must have been thrilling for him to realize that the redeemed would one day include people from all over the world in a day when the church was small and isolated and struggling and sinful. John must have been so concerned about its future, especially after he received the messages to at least five of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The knowledge that persecution and sin would not extinguish the spreading flame of Christianity, one man said, must have brought joy and hope to the apostle's heart. This song is about the power of Christ and the purchase of Christ and the people of Christ. It's about the promise of Christ. You have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here is recorded the praise of Christ for his promise, a promise that I believe is to begin to be realized in its fullness in a future time when Christ rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. When people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue, and he takes them and makes them kings and priests to God. You see, the redemption that we have in Christ not only made us part of God's family, but also makes us kings. It makes us priests, those who are able to enter into the very presence of God. That's the song. The scroll, the search, and the song. Which leads to the very point that I said I wanted to make today. O come, all ye faithful. Worship, adore, Christ. And that's exactly what happens in verses 11 through 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads, thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying, worthy is the lamb. It's as if all of heaven has to join in at the song of the, of, of the elders as they fell down before the the feet of this one, the lion lamb. All of heaven has to join in. And then, and then as, if, as if the world cannot contain it, not only do we have all of heaven joining in, but we have all of animate creation joining in in verse 13. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea fulfilling that which Paul saw in Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, confessing His Lordship. And that's exactly what is happening here as they, as they express the seven great possessions of Christ. Worthy are you to receive power. That's ability. The word is from our word dunamis means dynamite. He's worthy to receive. He's worthy to take unto himself all ability, especially the ability to complete God's plan of redemption. He is able, the writer of Hebrews said, to save to the uttermost. That's why you worship Christ. He's worthy of power. He's worthy of wealth. You see that? To receive power and wealth. This is not just spiritual wealth, but it is unconditional wealth. One commentator said, unconditional wealth in all realms as befitting an all-sufficient God. He who for the purpose of redemption became poor is worthy of all wealth of all the ages. One man said, there is no promise that Jesus Christ cannot carry out. 
There is no claim on him which he cannot satisfy. It says, worthy of wisdom. This speaks of the magnificent and high mind of God. Christ is worthy to receive that kind of wisdom. So if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. He's worthy of might. Christ is stronger than you. He's stronger than you. He's the only one, the the one and only one who has, on the basis of his victorious overcoming, can defeat the great enemy of all men. He is the one and only one who has all strength. And so he must be obeyed. He's worthy of honor. That refers to the honor that is God's rightful possession. He is unique in that He alone is worthy to take honor for Himself. The honor in being the Son of God. The honor of being man's only Savior. And then he says, in glory. That's the radiant majesty of God. That's Christ glorified. He who had laid aside the glory of being God in heaven has now received it unto Himself. Yet, in His flesh, Worthy of blessing. That's the quality of Christ evoking man's thankful response for all benefits received. He's worthy of your thanks. I just have to keep moving here. I'm almost to the end. Christ is the one who is worthy of all these things and that's why it's fitting that every creature would recognize that. Every creature, wherever they are, speaks out in praise of the Lamb who was slain forever and ever. There will never be a time when the one who was on the throne and the Lamb together are not worthy of such worship. You see, today you might praise me today, but tomorrow you'll curse me. I could speak highly of you today, but drag your your name through the mud tomorrow. But listen, friends, there will never come a time when the name of the Lord God and of His Christ could be rightly slandered or spoken ill of. The time will simply never come. Come. It's fitting that the climactic scene of heaven closes with John's vision of the four living ones sounding out with their agreement to that which has been spoken by every creature. Verse 14. And at the agreement of the living ones, those worshipful elders prostrate themselves once again and worship Him. The question is, who is Him? Is it, is it the one who is sitting on the throne or the lamb that was slain? Well, grammatically, it's the lamb, for the lamb is the nearest antecedent. But theologically, it's the lamb and the one who is seated on the throne. Worship is what's happening in heaven because of Christ's highly exalted position. And that's why you and I must answer the call of that well-known Christmas song, O come all ye faithful. There's a lesser known verse in that well-loved hymn. As are most older hymns, you know, most of them have 28 verses. This one, I don't know that we've ever sung before, but it goes like this. Child, Capital C, child for us sinners, poor and in the manger, we would embrace thee with love and all. Who would not love thee 
loving us so dearly? Who would not love Thee loving us so dearly? Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. And then with exuberant praise, all of animate creation concludes, Yea, Lord, we greet Thee. Born this happy morning, Jesus, to Thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Oh, come, let us adore Him. That's worship. Worship is not just fearful reverence. Worship is loving adoration. Do you love Him? Do you love Him today? He's worthy. He's worthy. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude now this time in the book of Revelation, how thankful we are for the glorious scene that is unfolded in heaven. We ask, O Lord, that you would impress, eternally impress the truth on our hearts and in our minds. Etch them on our eyes. We pray. In Christ's name and all God's people said.